Whether you're 5 or 105, there's now a code vaccine for you. 95% of the country is now eligible for a shot. What could that mean for our day-to-day lives? Last week, the CDC granted emergency use authorization for the Pfizer-BioNTech kids vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. In the days after, long lines of eager families waited to get their children vaccinated. Good news for an infectious disease expert. Not a sentence you get to say often. Dr. Monica Gandhi believes the pandemic will end within months, now that the vast majority of the U.S. population can get protected from COVID-19. She told Luke and me how kids' vaccines could get us back to our routines and what health metrics could predict the end of the pandemic. The UCSF professor also shed light on why she's taking her 11-year-old to get the shot and explain the process for other parents. Dr. Gandhi, welcome back on the show. Last time you were with us, it was early August, and the Delta variant had a firm hold on the country. Fast forward a few months, cases are now down, and last week, kids 5 to 11 were cleared to get the vaccine. So my question is, with tens of millions of 5 to 11-year-olds now eligible for the vaccine, is our country getting to the point where we're going to have enough protection against COVID-19 to really end this pandemic for good? Yes. I mean, I think it's really good to explain what we mean by pandemic ending, but I think that, yes, we are getting to what we call control. Because what the sort of stages are, are you're in a raging pandemic. We've been in a raging pandemic. That's everywhere. Then an epidemic is what's happening in your region. So that's the U.S. epidemic. Then once you get to low enough impact on society from a virus, it's called endemic. What that means is that we have enough control of the virus that it's not going to leave us completely because it's going to be around like every other virus except smallpox that's ever been around mankind because it's very difficult to eradicate any virus. But it's not going to be in our daily lives like this. We have 28 million 5 to 11 year olds who are eligible for the vaccine. We not only had increasing vaccinations with the Delta variant, about 35 million extra people got vaccinated, but frankly, we got a lot of immunity from just the Delta variant being so transmissible. And that's why areas in the South, for example, that didn't increase their vaccination rate got immunity the very hard way. And then there's two medications coming out, which are antivirals to help us treat it. So all of that, I'm with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who's saying January, I think that's where we're in control. What could stop that transition? What possible roadblocks could we face? I don't see much that's going to derail us from getting to control. I think it's more acceptance. We do have to live with it. There are people thinking that we're going to get rid of it completely. That is just not biologically possible. What would help that transition is more people getting vaccinated. Now, I do think that the child vaccine, even though you know I'm definitely encouraging it, there's an article in Time that I co-wrote the other day about why I think parents should get their children vaccinated, we still have a lot of hesitancy around that vaccine because children are so much less likely to get ill, which is totally understandable, but they're going to grow up and it's good to have immunity. And also they're protecting others by getting the vaccine. So we have to see what our uptake is of the child vaccine. It would be great if more adults who are unvaccinated got vaccinated. But the difference between now and when we last talked is it's not just child vaccines, the FDA is going to review the application for molnupiravir, 
which is this first antiviral that we have that is going to be able to treat people who decline to get vaccinated and who have moderate COVID. And it will, by the way, bring their viral load in their nose down really fast because it's an antiviral that inhibits replication so they can't transmit. Then we have another very exciting antiviral, a protease inhibitor from Pfizer. And it looked even better, like mild to moderate disease, 89% protection from getting into severe disease with this medication versus placebo. So it's the combination of prevention and treatment is why we're getting there. Okay, so assuming that we are getting back to normal, how will we know that it's happening? What metrics can we really look to as a signal that, oh, this pandemic is really waning? It's such a great question because the problem with looking at cases is ironically everyone is testing differently. And it could be that people who are testing are more in highly vaccinated regions, actually. There are places in our country where people aren't going and testing. And so looking at case rates is actually deceptive because there are places that look like they have higher cases. And it could be because they're testing more because they're just more hyper alert to it. So interestingly, I don't think we should be looking at cases as our metric. We should be looking at death. The way to think about deaths are twofold. One is that, and this sounds gruesome, and I'm sorry to say it, but the typical rate of death that we get from influenza is about 100 deaths a day if you average it out over a year. Many of us in February said that's going to be the day when we know we're in control. We're not there yet because we had such a terrible surge. There's still people in the hospital because people can be hospitalized for a long time. So that's one metric. The second is in a region, I would look at their hospitalization rate. So what is the hospitalization rate that you should expect? In a typical influenza year, there are 20 to 40 people in the hospital, over 100,000 people. COVID is more deadly than influenza for adults. So what I worked with others on to kind of model this out is five to 10, over 100,000 people in the hospital is where you're in control, because that means you have less disease in the community and you're still going to have people in the hospital. I mean, that's maybe the transition we all have to understand with better and better treatments. Hopefully they're going to be coming out of the hospital and doing well. We're always going to be dealing with this, but I know this seems so hard to hear because you don't believe it because we look at those case numbers, but it's going to blend someday into the background where it's one of those pathogens that we deal with. And actually we think about it a lot in medical care, but the public won't. I think it's going to take us psychologically quite a long time to maybe completely understand that and like have it be a part of our life, but a very low part of our life. No, yeah, it's really hard to believe. And if you wouldn't mind, can you just give us those numbers again of, you know, where we were, where we are now and where we're headed now that kids can get vaccinated? There was this Annals of Internal Medicine model that showed that we likely before Delta had 62% seroprevalence. So that means 62% of us have either been vaccinated or been exposed. Then you get Delta. That added 34 million more vaccinations, luckily, like people got vaccinated, maybe 35 million by this time. So that brought us up to a 75% of people who had immunity. And then we probably had at least 10 million recorded cases. And that was probably, you don't catch every case, three to 20 times less than what you actually record. So even if we underestimate and say 20 million more infections, we're probably at an exposure rate or immunity rate of something like 85%. We keep on going up and up with our immunity and that's what keeps something under control. And we have treatments and we have the five to 11 year olds getting vaccinated. It's really, you can see that end in sight, not end, 
but that control, and that's a way to live. So with the children's vaccinations becoming available, a lot of our listeners are parents, they're members of families, and we touched a little bit on hesitancy, but we would love to ask you some questions that parents may have about vaccinating their children. So if you could walk us through that. So first up, COVID is mild for most kids. Why should they get vaccinated? It is mild for most kids. That is a very fair point. I think there are three reasons to get vaccinated, though. One is that actually we have seven different vaccines that we give children very standardly, diphtheria, pertussis, measles, mumps, rubella, and then pneumococcus and H flu. And those last two actually aren't very severe for children. These are bacterial pathogens that are more severe in adults, but children grow up. And the reason to get that immunity going is that as you get older, you have that immunity for your future. Second is that during the Delta variant surge, we definitely saw hospitalizations and deaths among children. Yes, like if you rank the causes of death, it's not the main cause of death in children. It's not that. It's just that it seems that if you had something to prevent anything, you'd want to use it. Meaning, yes, there are many more children who die of car accidents. But if I had a shot that would prevent car accidents, I would want to give that to my child. And then the third is, and this is where I really fault the United States messaging. We have not messaged that you get back to normal if you get a vaccine. Children have been terribly affected by the prolonged school closures. I would encourage public health officials to say, hey, a certain point after there's availability of the child vaccine, we're not going to be masking in schools. You get to be around your friends and it's going to be normal. What side effects should kids expect when getting the vaccine? So this is important. There is hesitancy because of a potential side effect called myocarditis. And myocarditis is heart inflammation. Where we have seen that occur is very rarely in the older kids who are getting a much higher dose. We give a 10 microgram dose of the mRNA vaccine for five to 11 year olds. And it's just so much lower of a dose that I think it's going to be safe because I really see this dose dependence to it. One thing I do want to say about the side effects, though, the way that it's given is every three weeks, but there's evidence from immunology that if you give it longer spacing, you have a higher, not only antibody response, but your T cells, which is important. In Canada, they gave the vaccine at a longer spacing interval, and they saw higher vaccine effectiveness, 92% with giving it eight weeks apart as opposed to three weeks, which is 82% effective. And importantly, those rare cases of myocarditis were seen more in Israel with young males where they gave it three weeks apart and much less, fourfold less of that side effect in Canada where they give it eight weeks apart. So I have an 11-year-old. I will be giving him his vaccine, 10 micrograms, but I'm going to give a second dose eight weeks. And I would really encourage you to talk to a pediatrician about that. Even though it's a rare side effect, haven't seen it in the younger children, but this can probably make it safer. What would you say to parents who want to do a wait and see approach when nervous about vaccinating their kids? I think that's fine. Unlike the adult vaccine, which has been mandated. This is not a vaccine that's going to be mandated for children until it's fully approved. It will take probably six months or longer to get fully approved because the right thing is that for a low risk infection for children, you definitely want the vaccine to be safe. I do think it's safe. I'm going to vaccinate my own child. If parents want to wait and see until it's approved, I think that's totally fine. This week, we also checked in with our WTOP reporters, who have been out in the field. We'll first go to WTOP's Kate Ryan, who has been covering Maryland's distribution of the kids' vaccine. So Kate, how have Maryland counties been getting these vaccines? In Maryland, kids ages 5 to 11 are going to be able to get vaccinated against the coronavirus in pharmacies through their doctor's offices 
and in school settings and clinics in partnership with local health departments. So bottom line, there are a number of ways that kids will be able to get vaccinated. Now, in Maryland, additional COVID vaccines were made available to providers on Friday. Initially, the allocation was about 180,000 statewide. But on Friday, spokesman for Governor Larry Hogan, Mike Ricci, tweeted that the federal government would be providing pharmacies with an additional 101,700 vaccines. So that's in addition to the original amount. Is this something that parents and kids have been asking for? The demand for vaccines in that age group, kids 5 to 11, has been very strong. In Montgomery County, once the county opened slots for shots at county-run clinics over the weekend, six clinics on Saturday, six on Sunday, the appointments filled up within 45 minutes. In Prince George's County, there's also a push to make sure that the vaccines are easily available through after-school clinics at 15 area high schools. The dates could be added later for vaccinations at elementary schools as well. How is the vaccine going to change education for elementary and middle schoolers? Vaccination of the youngest group of school-aged children could really be a game changer. Officials say all their efforts, distancing, hand washing, mask wearing, and now vaccinations could really put a serious dent in the rates of quarantining that has to go on in schools across the region. Fewer kids in quarantine mean fewer kids missing out on in-person instruction. And that's a really big deal because schools are working hard to undo what's often called learning loss. The fact that so many kids fell behind while being given virtual instruction over the past 18 months. How are Maryland officials really getting the message out about these kids' vaccines? And how are they communicating to people that it's safe? In Montgomery County, there's been a very aggressive public information campaign to ensure that Latino families felt comfortable getting vaccinated. And that involved PSAs using a character called Abuelina, a clear reference to everyone's abuela. And here's how Abuelina sounds. Valentina, querida nieta, dime. Well, soon Abuelina will once again be offering her warm and welcoming presence to her querida nieta or dear granddaughter Valentina in a PSA about the vaccinations for little kids. Minelis Negron is with the communications firm that created the Abuelina public service announcements. And I asked her, so who is Abuelina? So who's the secret identity behind the voice? Turns out that's a secret. Negron would only say she's a native speaker who, like her character, has roots in El Salvador. And that's important because so many Spanish speakers in this area have roots there as well. We wanted Abuelina to really resemble the community, speak like the community. And I think that they feel that she is part of them because she resembles them, that she speaks like them. I talked to County Council Vice President Gabe Albornoz about the vaccination efforts, and he mentioned in a public meeting that he's a father of four, and three of his kids are in that 5 to 11 age group. Three of our kids are going to be signing up as soon as they can to receive it. Because we have such a high percentage of people who have received it, we're confident that they will allow their children to get it as well. Across the Potomac, reporter Neil Augenstein shared his experience getting vaccines for him and his family in Northern Virginia. There are a lot of ways for parents to find vaccines in their area. Virginia has a very good vaccination site that can tell you where there's vaccine near you, how far away from it. But there is a lot of flexibility and you know, there's going to continue to be more of a supply. So anybody who wants it should be able to get it pretty easily. I went on a local pharmacy site. The first day it became available, 
I was able to get my kid an appointment within a few minutes. And my guess is that other parents are doing the same thing. As a WTOP reporter, as a parent, how do you think kids' vaccines will affect our lives, you know, whether we're a kid or not? First, let me talk for myself as the parent of a kid who is immunocompromised. I can't wait for him to get his vaccine. My wife and I got our vaccines as soon as we could, and we've got our boosters, and our older child has gotten her shot. So I think that there are some parents, including those in my family, that are very happy that younger kids can get that. That being said, there are some parents who will not want their kids to be the first in line to get vaccine. And there are even some who don't want their kids to get vaccinated at all. I personally grew up believing that vaccines, by the time they get to uh, to market, have been tested thoroughly, and I put trust in them. And so from a personal standpoint, I'm glad to have my kids get vaccinated. I know that parents have held off on letting their kids do sleepovers, play dates, and I think that uh, perhaps this will give a chance for kids to live life as a kid a little bit more than they have been for the last couple of years. In D.C., dozens of pharmacies, hospitals, and health centers across all eight wards are vaccinating young kids. The D.C. Health Department is encouraging parents to check its vaccination site for updates on what locations are currently offering the vaccine for kids. On Tuesday, D.C. officials published a list of over 60 sites slated to receive pediatric doses. Check out WTOP.com for more information. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Laura Spitalniak. And me, Luke Garrett. Our cover art was created by cartoonist Audrey Garrett, and our music is courtesy of Lockspeed. Join us next Monday as the world recovers.